You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Jonathan Lionheart is a Canadian theologian, philosopher, author, and ordained minister, as well as a husband to Madison and a father to Soren and Augustine. Since 2021, he has been assistant professor of theology and philosophy at Lincoln Christian University in Illinois. He earned his PhD in theology and religious studies from the University of Cambridge in the UK, where he also received the Bernie Scholarship in Philosophy of Religion. He is one of three founders of the new Trinitarian Ontologies Conference at Cambridge. I heard Jonathan interviewed by Chris Tilling on the OnScript podcast about his new book, Monotheism, an absurdly monotheism, an absurdly arrogant attempt to answer all the problems of the last 2,000 years in one night at a pub. Jonathan and Seth Hart are co-hosts of the lighthearted and wide-ranging Spiritually Incorrect podcast. Welcome, Jonathan, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I just listened to uh, one of the episodes of your podcast, and I noticed something that came through in your podcast episode with you and your your host, co-host Seth, and in your book. There's a lightheartedness to it. And sometimes theological discussions aren't characterized by lightheartedness. So <laughs> you seem to be, whatever you're doing with all of this, you seem to be having fun. How did, how did you get this, this humorous approach to what, you know, can be kind of a serious conversation at times? Yeah, I think a huge part of my spiritual journey started at summer camp and, uh, there the joys and ridiculousness and games of summer camp was always bound up with the spiritual. And I kind of just had a moment where I was like, why can't all of life be like summer camp? And then I just ran with that. And that's kind of how I try to do my life is summer camp all the time. Um, I think laughter is almost a transcendental for me. Like it's, it's almost up there with love and goodness. And I, I think it's, it's right up there such that uh, if there isn't joy and laughter in something, I almost feel like it's morally lacking or deficient, which is probably in a way just projecting my personality onto the universe and saying everyone has to be like me. Uh, but it's, it's the way I approach things anyway. So if I'm not having fun, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to stick with anything really. Well, so. your, your, your book is ends up being, you know, you're talking about the Trinity and one of the more difficult theological concepts, but your book ends up being this sort of lighthearted dialogue uh, between these three characters. And there's also just a sense in which dialogue is an important way that you have of communicating and thinking. And, you know, whether it's in a, like in a podcast conversations or, uh, your book is set conversationally. And so what is it about dialogue that you like? Yeah, well, uh, the book is simultaneously meant to be popular level and academic. 
popular level in the sense that it's written as a conversational dialogue, but also academic in the sense that I'm really trying to answer problems that have a long academic history. And I, I think I'm trying to make academic proposals that, if not entirely new, are at least adding a new spin on things, which is usually the sort of thing you do in a highly complex journal article. But uh, as per my previous answer about joy and laughter, I, I try to integrate the academic and the personal and the playful and do all of those things at once, um, which is why I, I wrote uh, this book as a conversation in a pub. Even though it's it's liter I'm trying to answer free will. I'm trying to solve the Trinity, if that's possible. Um, but I'm trying to do it in a way that I can bring the audience along with me. And I think there's precedent for that because the Socratic dialogue is actually the most ancient of academic genres, going back to the Greeks and Plato. And so I think it's a very recent thing that academic writing has to be dull and boring and dry. And I think it's uh, a hangover from the Enlightenment, where we assumed that objectivity was removing the subject, the human subject, and any sense of humanness or relationality or intimacy or personality. Uh, and so to be objective, to be talking about academic things, you have to get rid of the personal side of that. And I just reject that assumption entirely. Uh, uh, and so I, I refuse to write academic stuff that is quote unquote objective in that sense. I always put the personal back into it and the playful and the human. Um, and finally, as for the dialogical side of things, I think that's just Trinitarian. I think that at, at the heart of the universe, at the ontological heart of everything is not a, a lonely individual, but a thriving dialoguing community that is three, but also one. And so I think all truth to be fully accessed has to be in that sort of dialogical form in one way or another. And uh, I find that that's, that's a good way to access the heart of things is through that dialogical mode, because that's not just a means to an end. That's part of the end itself. I think the nature of reality is in some way conversational and Trinitarian. Well, I, I noticed in your uh, the most recent episode, or one of the most recent episodes, uh, your podcast uh, co-host, Seth, got a little frustrated with you because he said, <laughs> you know, man, you, you just won't ever take, you won't ever like take a stand. You're, you know, you're, you're always like dancing, you know, like dancing around it. Sometimes you just need to say it's this or that. And mm. I, and there was something that I took away from your book, which which is that we live in this sort of either or world. It's this or that, but you're trying to say there's some bothness. That's kind of what I, that's kind of an idea that I took away from your book. Yeah. I think there is that in between that space. That's neither one or the other, either or. Uh, and I think again, that's Trinitarian. It's not one or three in some way it's both. Um, it's not unity or diversity, one or manyness. It's somehow both. Uh, but I would also say that at the same time, both and thinking allows for either or thinking because you can do either or thinking and also both do both thinking. Uh, and so I tend to see this embracing of, of bothness of 
as as encompassing the either or and saying you can do either or and also not either or and both of those can come together and that's something that just tends to annoy very logical people who say it has to be either or but I, I think that's part of the beauty of sort of trans logical thinking is it doesn't negate logic it actually says logic can be fully valid but also there's something else at the same time because it's both. It's both either or and both and. And both of those statements can be valid because it's both and. So. Well, I think when uh, initially I heard you you being interviewed by Chris Tilling and then I reached out to you and we had an initial conversation. I thought what was kind of funny is that my, my background, my undergraduate degrees in computer has to do with some computer programming and and, you know, computers are, you know, one or zero. Either, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very either or. And I find that my mind kind of works that, tends to work that way, tends to be kind of either or. And when, when I was talking with you, it was very apparent that, that you, you were finding spaces between the either or. And so I thought it, I thought it made for an interesting discussion. Oh, well, I'm glad to, to hear that. And it's not just deeply frustrating and you uh, hate me for it, which uh, my brother-in-law who co-hosts the Spiritually Incorrect podcast with me will get oh, that's very your, that's frustrated your, with me. That's your brother-in-law? Yeah, he's my brother-in-law. <laughs> so uh, I uh, we became friends. I stole his sister and then somehow he's still my friend. Um, yeah, so what's interesting, uh, David, is I'm actually... Can I, can I call you David? I don't yeah. know. Sir, Sir Artman. Uh, <laughs> um, I actually, I would say I have a very philosophical, in the traditional sense, a very almost binary way of thinking, very similar to you, where I want things to be very rational and logical. And that was my starting point. And I took that approach to all of these questions, uh, things like the Trinity, things like the origins of the universe, things like free will that are in my book. And I tried to make them work into that binary either or format. And I just kept hitting a wall where they just wouldn't work. And I, I, no matter how many books I read about them or how many brilliant scholars I consulted on it, I found that no one was really able to explain any of these things, that they just kept hitting a wall. Um, and so I think in a sense, my reason argued me into thinking that there's something beyond reason. And I think that's a unique kind of interesting way into that. I didn't start as a mystery sort of hippie who's like, everybody's right, man. Let's all sing Kumbaya together. <laughs> I think I started, you know, because I do theology and philosophy. I, I started from this, what I would at least try to aim to be rigorously philosophical. And I guess I think the philosophical always leads beyond itself and the best of rationality tends to point out its limits and show where it, it cannot go and articulate those boundaries. And so for me, reason has led beyond itself. And I think that's really at the heart of my book, Monotheism, um, which, uh, I mean, I guess to just summarize it quickly, because I keep referring back to it. The point of monotheism, my book, is that when I look at the Trinity, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how God can be one and three, and it just seems like uh, it doesn't make sense. But 
Then I looked at the origins of the universe, cosmology, cosmogony, how did anything come to exist at all? And I found that it also did not make sense. And the more I looked at those two conversations in parallel, the more I realized that they're actually the same issues in both contexts. These same issues that come up when we're trying to make sense of the Trinity are also the same enigmas that come up when we're trying to make sense of the existence of the universe and the, the fact that anything exists at all. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized these aren't just similar problems. They're actually, in philosophical terms, the exact same problems, just in different languages. One, the language of theology. The other, the language of cosmology. And if they're actually the same enigma, does it become as rational to believe in the Trinity as to believe in our own existence? Perhaps the Trinity doesn't make sense, but neither does the universe or the fact that anything exists at all. And yet we're here. Somehow or other, we came to exist. So these sorts of things must happen or else we wouldn't exist to talk about it. And that's a very rational way of arguing for something that's beyond reason. Uh, I don't embrace paradoxes and mystery just anywhere. For me to embrace mystery uh, means that the alternative was to deny that anything exists at all. And that's the only way I was going to embrace mystery was... To, because to not do so would be to negate the universe. And that seemed even more mysterious. So in a way, I embraced the mystery of the Trinity uh, as the lesser of two evils. Um, all that to say that I, I think I'm trying to find a way to rationally embrace the irrational that really does justice to both of those things at the same time. That really is both and and either or, precisely because it is both and, and so is able to encompass both and thinking and either or thinking. Um, well, I thought, so. I thought that your approach was interesting. And what I'd like to do now is just go through some of the kind of the, the questions that end up, you might say, haunting me. They're, they're, they're in my <laughs> mind a lot. And um, that what I'd like to do is just ask you the questions and we'll just have some conversation about it and uh, kind of in a, in a good natured collegial way, try to understand each other the best, the, the best that we can. And so let's just kind of see what happens here. So first question I've got for you is, is God a loving parent to all persons? I can't help but feel this is a trap. I'm, I'm there's, there's little, uh, <laughs> <laughs> cookies being laid and i'm going to answer yes to all of these questions and then it's going to lead you're going to spring the trap and uh, and then you're going to convert me to universalism live on your channel which will be great for ratings uh so uh yes i think god is a loving parent yes i do well i mean not just as a philosophical thing for me but i, I didn't grow up uh, going to church and the 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 first presentations that I got about God from Christians didn't seem very, seem pretty harsh. Yeah. And I realized that even, you know, over a long period of time where I, I did start, start warming up to the idea of maybe that God really was loving, that it took me a long time to really get to the idea that God loved me really like, like my own parents loved me that had yeah. that kind of, that, that God had that kind of regard for me, that I was truly God's child and that the love that I was receiving from my parents was not a different kind of love, but was sort of the love of God 
the parental love of God uh, for me kind of coming through my parents, that that God was as much my parent as my human parents were. Um, and, and it took me a long time for that to not just be something I believe, but something that I felt. Yeah. If that makes sense. For sure. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's one journey to say that the love of a parent is reflected in the sky, looking back down on you. And another journey to say that someone's parents didn't love them and yet God does. Um, and so we all have different kind of paths through that. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the parent child relationship is one aspect of the relational diamond that reflects God. And I think, I think friendship, I think teacher disciple relationships, I, I think, uh, the love uh, and sex marital relationship. I think all of these things in some way have a glimmer of the divine in them and point back to God. I don't think any one of those relationships encompasses all that God is, but I do think all of these relationships and the parent-child relationship do point back to who God is. And each piece provides one sort of brushstroke in the broader painting. All right, here's the next step in my trap for you. Yeah, let's do it. Trap me. Trap. You, 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 get to, you get to trap me. I get fired from my evangelical institution. I, and then I just haunt you forever, David. So let's do it. Does God sincerely desire the salvation of all persons? Yes. I, I believe that, yes. Okay. Uh, so that would distinguish you from uh, the... The August, the uh, Augustinian Calvinist position uh, historically, which was the idea that that God in before creation never intended to save to save all, but it was going to save some, but not not ever grant the kind of uh, efficacious grace or the kind of grace that would lead to salvation to others. Is, is that a fair summary? Well, I suppose, I mean, if you want to just say yes, but I think there's also a sense in which you could say if God is limited by his own nature to certain outcomes and that even in the best possible of all worlds, some will still be lost. I still think you could say that God sincerely desired for Judas to be saved, for example, and yet it wasn't possible given all of the factors uh, at play. And so you could say that God thought from the very beginning and created someone knowing that they wouldn't be saved. Um, and yet sincerely desires them to be saved, even though he knows that desire is futile. Uh, I mean, that's very indicative of the parental situation. Uh, I think of one of the pastors that I knew who adopted a child at a middle age, knowing that past a certain age you know once you adopt someone at nine ten it's it's often it's often going to be a futile enterprise and they kept loving them even though the they got lost in addiction and they went down a path that ultimately led to suicide and despite that they sincerely wanted to save them and help them the whole way through knowing that it was probably futile 
So I think that side of the parental relationship is also indicative of the divine, perhaps. Now in, you know, in my Christian universalist circles, with well, the response to that would be, well, you know, that's a, but, but a parent is not the creator of the whole world. Parent is not God. Um, the parent doesn't know, the, you know, but in the situation with God, if you have uh, God making a whole creation um, and knowing that that's going to happen, then that would be a different, that would be a different kind of thing than, than a contingent uh, person within that creation wanting to do contingently what they could do for the best of another person in the creation. Yeah. Well, I would say a couple of things, and I don't want to just argue. Um, I think there's a sense in which we have to decide which aspects of our experience are indicative of God and which are not. So we want to say God is a parent, and so that brings with it certain aspects of parenting, but it doesn't bring it with it certain other aspects, such as you know, you would say the one that I just brought up about parenting in a hopeless case. And I don't necessarily disagree with the point you just made, but there's always a picking of choosing of which aspects of ourselves we're going to be allowing to be indicative of the divine, which we're not going to say are indicative of the divine. Um, so we'll critique as a projection of human limitation some things, but then allow other things about us to be truly indicative of who God is. And I think that's necessary to the theological task, but I, I also just want to be aware that there is constantly a picking and choosing there. And what you pick and choose will ultimately lead to which answers you get. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder, sometimes we want to go beyond the human situation and say, well, we're limited, but God's unlimited and can do anything. And I don't know if if that's true. I think our limitations are sometimes indicative of divine limitations because God's limited by his own nature, unless you want to take a nominalist sort of absolutization of will. And I don't personally want to take that. And so I, I do believe that it's possible for God to create lovingly someone that he truly desires to come to himself, but knowing they will freely choose to rebel against him and never return. And that he might be limited and not able to do otherwise than that. It might simply be the case that that's the best of all possible worlds. Uh, and he is limited. And our sort of human limitations, such as in the case of the parent-child relationship where the child fell into addiction and ultimately killed themselves, perhaps those limitations are at times as indicative of the divine as our parent-child love is indicative of the divine. And that's where the picking and choosing comes in. Theologians are constantly choosing what's just a projection, an anthropological Feuerbachian projection, and what about us is actually indicative of heaven. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what to pick and choose and decide about myself is true analogically of God and what isn't. And I think a lot of that just comes down to, you know, as um, Schweitzer said, what you see when you look down the well. So. 
All right. Uh, we'll keep moving these questions. Let's come to some of the some of the themes come back up again. Well, uh, I'm sorry uh, if I'm I'm kind of going in circles. Oh there. no, that's that's okay. We can we 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 can go in circles. Let's see. Number three: Are human beings at an essential level rationally oriented towards God and the good? So this is where I think my unique view of free will will become problematic, or not problematic, but more complicated. I would say yes we have an inherent nature for the good. But I believe freedom means that we can ultimately choose to act outside of our nature. And that's one of those both and types of things where I think logic is not negated, but it's it's brought along for a journey with mystery at the same time that I was kind of talking about before. Um, so, yeah. Just, I say that, as someone who knows where you're going to go with that question, <laughs> it's sort of preempting it. I think we do have a rational nature uh, towards the good. And I think if we were speaking strictly lack, uh, logically, that would have to deterministically in the end lead us back to God. But I think free will allows us to both act within and beyond our nature simultaneously. And that's the both and of freedom. Okay. Uh, question number four. Does God know from the beginning of creation whether or not all will finally be saved? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, th this is one of those questions where I, I just, I can say some answers for one side and then I can give some good reasons for the other side. And it really just depends on the day you ask me. Um, I, I, I don't have a good answer to that. I see good arguments for both sides. So I, I think there, there's, there's something that needs God in the classical sense to know the end and to, to be omniscient and to have those classical attributes. And I'm on board with that. I, I don't want a ontotheological God who's just a creature writ large. I want the God of being and truth and all of those things in themselves and that type of sort of God would know. And yet at the same time, I also think God limits himself in the incarnation. And I, I sometimes think our philosophical need for God to be this sort of classical, almost Greek, uh, well, not Greek in the Zeus sense, but Greek in the philosophical sense. I think our need for this, for God to be, the sort of philosophical God of classical theism sometimes overweighs the biblical narrative. And I, I think God seems to change his mind in the old Testament. Jesus seems to self limit. Um, and I, I wonder if God, I don't, I'm not saying I believe this, but I'm open to the discussion that God may be able to know everything that will happen but freely chooses to self-limit that knowledge in order to open up space for us to genuinely make free decisions uh, because to foreknow might be in some way to force to happen. And perhaps he, he isn't inherently limited in his knowledge, but chooses to limit his knowledge much in an incarnational way in order to open up space for us to make those free decisions. So had a, this is one of those situations where I'm not giving you an answer, but I'm saying I could see <laughs> either side of that. So I had, a, I had a 
conversation with somebody we we're talking about open theism and you know the idea that i mean i would go with like the isaiah 46 10 god knows from in, the end from the beginning you know there are certain passages that you can quote that direction then then there are other passages you know that that you can quote that seem to suggest god changing god's mind and you know those types of things but anyway yeah. if it was let's say that god if it is open let's let's say it's open and that god doesn't know what's going to happen if it's if it's truly open it could be the case that you could get the result of any result from the spectrum of all being saved to all being lost that yeah. that the, that every every possibility along that spectrum would then be open i i could see someone saying that yeah <laughs> I could, I could see that being a plausible, plausible way to take this. Yeah. So then I, you know, so, so then I kind of imagine, okay, in that scenario, then God is, okay, I'm going to create, but what I want to do is I want to limit, I could know if it's all going to turn out well for everybody, but what I want to do is limit my ability to know that. And I'm going to create. And when I do this, anything from everything going completely haywire and wrong could happen to everything being completely wonderful. And I'm just going to see what happens here. Well, and that's the terror of otherness is that when you open up a space for the other to truly exist and not just be overwhelmed by your being and your ideas, they really could go in any direction. And as, as a parent whose kids are starting to have a will of their own, it's terrifying to think that they could go in any direction. And to want to force them to go in the right direction and do everything I possibly can to nurture and help guide them in that direction. But at the same time, admit that they are, as much as they are one with me, they're also other and that I have to allow them to be genuinely other and that at some point they're going to have to make their own choices and that that will in some sense be ultimately out of my hands. And that's, that's terrifying. And as a good parent, I want to do everything I can now, but I also have to ultimately accept at some point that if I keep trying to force the outcome, that's not being a good parent either. And you do have to let them out free and fly. Um, and I, I, think, I think that's what genuine otherness has to be. If God is going to allow us to actually be other and not just sort of a forced extension of his self, there has to be that space for anything to happen. And I suppose at an ontological level, I don't think that's something God could have chosen to do differently. I think that's grounded in the most basic nature of reality because God is both self and other, one and three, father, but also not father, son, spirit. And so I see that dialectic of self and other as not something where God could choose to do differently and just hasn't chosen to do differently. I think of that as the very most basic fundamental nature of the divine and the nature ontologically of the universe itself. And so I don't think God could create a, a, an other, an entity apart from himself without allowing them that utter freedom in some sense to not just be an extension of him and his will and his desire, but to actually go out on our own. Um, and I know that you want to say, would a good God do that? And the reason 
God's actions have to be good is because those are basic to his nature. Well, I'm saying that the relationship of self and other is basic to the nature of God and a Trinitarian God. And so he has to open up that genuine other space and allow us to wander in it and let us really make our decisions. Whether he knows what those decisions will be or not is a separate question. But I very emphatically believe that genuine otherness allows those decisions to really be other and different from what God perhaps wants. Yeah, I guess the way that I've put it together is the idea that God is a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all and is love and is creator. And so this loving creation is not really so much a decision that God makes. God's not deciding to love. God is love. And and sort of God is creation. God is creator. Uh, God's not deciding, do I want to create or not? It's, it's, it's in the essence of, of who God is. And so that finally, I think that's what I've found compelling about origin of Alexandria, his and I take some comfort in that, the, you know, sort of the first and greatest, I think, the uh, philosophical, you might call him theologian of the early church, you know, thought that somehow that the, that the perfect goodness of God in the, in the beginning would also reign in the end, but that God was above time and that so God makes the aeons so that then uh, through the aeons, God's redemptive purposes get worked out. He was very concerned that free will not be violated, but he thought that God could patiently allow people to discover who they really are and what is really the good, and that he could do that without forcing them into it, by, but by gradually through the aeons, letting them have whatever experiences they needed. And then at the end of the aeons, God would be all in all. Nobody would be in an aeon anymore. And we would sort of all be in that transcendent uh, communal experience of love, that that fun, eternal conversation that was going on before would now be perfectly expanded uh, to um, to have all of us. And I guess for me, that feels that feels like I'm in the hands of a loving and competent being who is love. And so I'm, I have a, I have a friend who, uh, uh, you know, tells his kid, well, there's nothing you can do to, to change the fact that I'm your dad. Uh, well, so there's nothing that, 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 so that the creation finally, if I'm a child of, of God, that finally my character is the character of God. And if that's love pure, well, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's like a gift. That's like the best gift that God could give. And so I'm just, it's not that, I think one of the things that frightened me a little bit when I became, when I started thinking about Christianity was I was afraid Jesus, if I invited him into my life, he was going to kill me because. (laughs) (laughs) because When when Jesus calls a man, he bid him come and die. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that what was going to happen was that, um, you know, I'm 16. If I invite Jesus into my life, what he's going to do is he's just going to come in. He's going to erase me. And he's in, and he's just going to put himself in my body and I'll be, Uh I'll be dead. I won't be me anymore. And I think what, what I, 
a, a better way of thinking about it that I finally came to is that is that whatever is false and untrue about myself is something that Jesus will come and and help help separate me, help separate from me, so that what is true about myself will ultimately be able to come forward and to be expressed, and that what is true and beautiful about each person is a little bit different and unique. And then when you put them all together, then all of us form something that's eternally, it that is, it's been eternally beautiful and unique and coheres all together. But what's happening is it's over, it's, it's having to come to being in time through the aeons. So that's what God is doing. Not that, 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 that would be how I would work through it, I guess. Yeah. And there's certainly an aesthetic power to that and a, a moral, a lethic power as well. And I wouldn't want to say it's wrong per se. I, I just, I see the pros and cons of it and I see the pros and cons of other positions as well. And I, I, I think as theologians, we're constantly, there's this pressure to have a very clear answer or to be like, well, this is what I am and I believe this. And I, I really want to push back against that and say, I, I'm not sure. Like what you're saying, David, sounds wonderful. And it, there's a sort of, it's not just like, oh, I want that to be true. There's a philosophical power to it. But I, I do think there's also some aesthetic and philosophical and theological power to the uh, the alternatives as well. And it's, it's hard. You were saying that you wanted to not lose yourself, that yourself didn't have to die. And I think that's precisely the affirmation of, of the individual that I'm so trying to get at in this sense that God allows us to be genuinely other is that even as we come into relationship with him, we don't lose who we are. And I think that space requires genuine otherness such that God perhaps does give up control. And if that control is perhaps just for thousands of years and we eventually all figure out our way back to him, then great. That, that would be magnificent. But genuine otherness doesn't, in my mind, necessarily have that clear end. It might really just indefinitely go on and unless God's to violate our otherness and impose his will upon it or to impose his goodness and nature on it and force us back, I, I don't know how we could be assured of universal salvation. Um, but I, I can think of arguments against what I just said as well. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just sort of talking and seeing where it goes. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the idea that, uh, like, well, Origen, it's just as an example, he read 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, you know, in the original Greek, and the way he understood all of that, he meant, well, okay, God is going to be all in all. God will finally be all in all. And there were other passages of Scripture that he thought, you know, led to that, um, led to that conclusion. And so, in a way, the kind of the way I see his theology, it's almost, it starts with the end. And then kind of works, you know, kind of works backwards that, yeah. you know, so how can God, how can God get there? And there were, um, at his time, there were people criticizing 
Christianity and going after it and saying, well, you know, the God of Christianity isn't good. And, you yeah. know, you know, in that origin and folks like him that first came, that first sort of put together kind of a, a, a Christian universalist theology philosophy, they were in a, they were in a world where philosophical thinking was well underway. And yeah. in a way, this was a, this was a defense that they were making about the goodness of God against others who were saying that the, that the Christian God is not in fact good. Yeah. Well, it definitely does have a strong eschatology and a strong God is good all in all. I wonder if annihilationism might also allow that sort of goodness in the end where being is ultimately good. And so to exist in any sense, to participate in the, the good being of God must in some sense mean you're not totally lost. And so to truly be separated from God is to cease to exist. Um, in that situation, wouldn't it also be all that exists in the end, all in all, is God and it, it is good and there is nothing in being that isn't good? Yeah, th- I think that's in, in, in when I held it, that, that position, I thought, well, at least what that does is it, it, it allows a final resolution where there's not this sort of ongoing rebel camp, <laughs> this yeah. eternal rebel yeah. camp that God is sustaining forever in this, in this hell. But, but that finally, uh, that evil sort of extinguishes itself and it does so on a voluntary basis. And yeah. so finally that God is all in all. And I do think that that's why, um, you know, people that are moving from eternal conscious, if, if they're, if they can't do the eternal conscious torment position anymore for one reason or another, that the, the annihilation position or the kind of God, God respects people's free will enough to finally allow them to descend into non-existence. So that's really what they want to do. Even after ad infinitum chances to go the, the best yeah. direction. So I think that that's why, um, you know, people move so to that. It's a gateway drug, isn't it? It's a gateway drug to <laughs> universalism. Uh, well, not well, everybody, not everybody, you know, feels compelled to go to go on to universalism. I think that um, universal. What I think the way I think of universalism, it, it has a certain appeal, and it has a certain logical, philosophical cohesion to it. There are scriptural passages that can be made. I guess what. Uh, what I'm hoping is that in the coming years that um, that there will be that that people won't be excluded from Christian community or told they can't be Christian if they if they if they want to go this lane like if the Christian yeah. universalist lane makes sense to you um, then that would be it would, I think it would be you know really tragic that 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 person would try to go to a church and the church would say, well, I'm sorry, not only can you not be a member of this church, but you are not a Christian and you are going to hell. And, or if somebody was trying to uh, consider the Christian faith and they said, well, you know, I can be a Christian if I could believe God was going to finally save everyone. And somebody then authoritatively said, well, that means you can't be a Christian because no real Christian has ever believed that God will ultimately save everyone. So, yeah, so I'm just trying yeah. to, I guess, open up that lane. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think Western Christianity in particular is really going to have to 
have a better conversation in the coming decades about what is primary and what is secondary. Uh, because I know there is a lot of, there are churches in the area that would hire a youth pastor who has no understanding of basic Christology uh, as long as they were on the right position when it comes to something like universalism or homosexuality. Uh, because in many ways, these hot button topics, because they're being talked about, matter more to us than Christology. Uh, and I think there's going to have to be a reckoning about what is primary and what is secondary and the ability to disagree and, and not have to agree with each other about these things, but still be in communion and conversation. I, I think that's I don't know what the answer is to that, but I think there's going to have to be a better discussion about it than what's been going on for sure. Well, and when I, you know, your your book um it's it you know it's kind of trying to solve all the problems i can't what was the subtitle again exactly uh monothreism an absurdly arrogant attempt to answer all the problems of the last two thousand years in one night in a pub <laughs> yeah and and so i was when i read the book of course you can imagine from my point of view it's like, I, I really hope he gets into the the question about it can god still be good you know if if a single person is lost in the book you kind of address you know that other religions but if you know if a single person can god be good if god in foreknowledge somehow makes a creation in which even a single person is lost or might be lost um can god still be good and then kind of a related question is could i be saved if everyone isn't saved can could could i ever uh, be um uh, completely at ease if i knew that there was somebody that was lost and in a bad situation or somebody who had been permanently, who had permanently been lost forever would, how could I ever, um, yeah. I guess, recover from that? Yeah. Well, and I think the subtitle is, is meant to joke that I'm basically almost in a Hegel like fashion, attempting to answer all of the big questions and so it's, it's more meant to be poking fun and not to actually say I'm solving everything. Uh, because, yeah, that's a question I don't really get into um, in, that, in the book. I do think I lay out some resources in the book, especially when talking about what free will is, that I think would be helpful in this discussion, um, especially when we're getting into this question of more of an intellectual, rational definition of free will versus more of a nominalistic will. Um, and perhaps that can be a, a place moving forward for me to look at in future books. Uh, so monotheism too, and a, a, an even more absurd <laughs> attempt to answer all of the problems of the last 2023 years in one night in a pub. See, that's, that's the get out of jail free card. It's the last 2000 years, but not the last 23. We're only talking about universalism in mainstream evangelical circles in the last 23 years in 2023. Uh, but of course, uh, we they were talking about it in the patristic period and stuff like that too. I know that, but the uh, that's the that's the get out of jail free. Let me let me lay out a big generalization and then see what you what you think about it. So I went to um, uh, Mainline Protestant Seminary, Bright Divinity School. It was it was uh, in Fort Worth in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, but the idea there was that there wasn't any one party line that anybody had to have. In the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, there's rejection of creeds as test of fellowship. There's, so there's no one theology that's demanded. However, 
there was a kind of at the seminary, seminaries sort of have a vibe a little bit. You know, it's not like they're trying to say you have to think exactly one thing, but you can sort of tell that most of the professors are kind of in this groove and a lot, most of the students are in that groove. And it's not like yeah. you're being pressured to go that direction, but that's where most of the energy, you know, it's just what's being talked about. Yeah. And there's no genuine neutrality. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. There's So there's kind of a personality to every place. Okay. So the place that I was at, it was almost like, well, we don't really talk about heaven and hell as afterlife things. That's what evangelicals do. We don't talk about salvation that way. <laughs> what we talk about is delivering people from the, from the hells that exist in this world right now, like poverty and uh, abuse and oppression and all those things and trying to lift people up and, and save them, um, like the, the, save in the, in the word of deliverance to bring wholeness of life. And, you know, that's the most important thing. And the most important thing is loving, right, loving and expressing love right now. And in any of this conversation, that's about what happens after you die. And if there's a heaven and who finally goes there and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's, that's what evangelicals talk about. And we don't, we know we're not yeah. really we're not we're not really doing that. And there was sort of an idea that that what we need to do is respect each other's everybody's humanity. And so there was kind of a move towards even um, that. Well, you know, we're Christians, but the reason that we're Christians is probably because we were born here. We grew up here. But somebody else is Muslim, probably because of where they grew up. Somebody is Hindu, probably because of where they grew up. And so uh, the idea that we're going to say that you know, our tradition somehow trumps all the other traditions, you know, just mm -hmm. doesn't seem good. Um, so we should probably recognize, probably recognize that. Well, then on the other side is like evangelicalism or fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's pretty exclusively focused on afterlife issues and heaven and hell and salvation is going to heaven as yeah. opposed to going to hell forever. And, it's that Jesus is the savior and that there's no salvation outside of Christ. Uh, and that not only will there be people that will be lost, there will be a lot of people that will be lost. And so there's going to be a narrowness to, to salvation. And so uh, the time is short. We need to save as many people as we can. And also sort of on top of that is an eschatology that's, you know, everything is, this is the end times right now. And Jesus is getting ready to come back. When I was in seminary, you know, it was, well, all that talk about the end times, that's probably yeah. apocalyptic language that's more connected with the first century. So we need to be careful not to pull that out of its context. Yeah. So, so you got those sort of these two separate camps. Now, my Christian universalism ends up not working in either one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's probably good because I don't think Jesus works in either one of those extremes either. Well, this right? is this I do get I think I get a point here from you is because if I've set this up is I'm not either I'm not either one of them. In a way I'm both of them. I'm taking yeah. I'm I'm really taking things from different parts of the Christian tradition and in putting together I'm not really even creating anything new because yeah. sort of the, the approach that I've got is very uh, patristic in its orientation. Um, so yeah. anyway, what do you think about that generalization? You know, I think there's definitely this divide, uh, which perhaps goes along the sense of, uh, 
one side focuses on heaven, on eternity, on those types of questions. And the other side focuses on the physical, the embodied. And that has logically uh, begun to be associated more with Marxist ideologies that have more of an imminent type of thing. And so the one side dismisses the other side as too Marxist, too embodied, too much of an imminent eschatology. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other side then in turn dismisses the other side as haters of the earth who just want to die and go to heaven, who reject social justice, who care not about the poor or oppressed, but just about saving souls. And I, I think the incarnation is precisely dancing in the, the tension between those two because it's the eternal in time. It's heaven come down to earth. It's the absolute in the particular. It's the spiritual taking on flesh embodied reaching out and actually touching the poor and the the suffering and healing their physical suffering and i think the tension of christianity uh and i also of the the jewish uh hebrew bible is there is this spiritual being who also is very active in history who is then embodied in the incarnation and this is an earthy fleshy dirt faith uh that doesn't dichotomize the spiritual and the physical and the eternal destination and the temporal location it it brings those together and so i think you're in good company if you're trying to do that uh and not is am i getting the right point here or am i getting lost no no that's good one of the things that i appreciated about you is um that you know, sometimes when I think of, like, if I think of somebody, oh, they're a, uh, they're in a, kind of an evangelical college or university, and and that, uh, I don't know, that my Christian universalism might be some kind of antimatter, you know, <laughs> to them. And, mm. um, but with you, I felt like, no, we're having a good conversation. You understand, like, the lane that I'm in, kind of where I'm coming from you would recognize me as part of the Christian community um, and that, that it was a legitimate form of Christian expression. It might not be one that, you know, that works in certain church settings now, but it's, um, but you didn't, you know, it's not something that you weren't aware of and that you didn't, uh, that you didn't know about and didn't know that it had some good arguments. Yeah, I, I think, there's, I think Christians have to get past this idea that if you think someone is wrong, therefore they're a heretic. Because heresy can't just be every single issue, right? Like that just can't be. Uh, and I think perhaps this comes out of an inerrancy, this idea that we can't have even a single mistake in Scripture uh, because then the whole thing falls apart. And I get where those people are coming from. Um, but then what that means is every battle is the war. You can't lose a single battle or the whole war is lost because if there's one thing you're off about, you're not taking the whole right. If you, you know, it's a common creationist argument. If you don't take Genesis this way, you're not going to take the rest of the Bible that way either. And you're going to forfeit not just the beginning, you're going to forfeit the end and the incarnation and you're going to lose salvation. 
and like it's you're you're gonna you're gonna misunderstand the whole thing. And there there has to be more space to say we can disagree and be wrong about the details, but we still believe that we're saved by the blood of Christ. And I my impression is that most of the Christian universalists I've talked to, or at least most of the ones who want to bother to talk to me, are still articulating that no one is getting to God or to heaven except through the blood of Christ. It's just that the blood of Christ is washing over everyone and everything eventually. Um, and if you're gonna if you're gonna say that's not the case, then we can have a different discussion here. Right. <laughs> no, no. I mean but, that's that's kind of what. Um, um, in my in my world, uh, it's not unusual that some of the folks that I would have gone to seminary with or, or know would think that my position is fairly conservative because what I'm doing is I'm saying I think something real happened in the incarnation. I think something real happened on the cross. I think that that there was um, kind of like in Romans chapter five, the way Paul puts that 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 whatever went wrong in Adam has been more than made right in Christ. And that where, you know, where grace, um, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And basically what I'm doing is I'm taking two ideas from the history of the Christian tradition, one that was expressed very strongly in the Protestant Reformation, that salvation was by grace alone. And then I'm putting that with another idea, which is that, you know, God loves everybody and would would want to extend grace to everybody. And yeah. I'm just, I'm putting those two together and saying, I don't think that I have to choose between, I think it doesn't, no, this is another either or thing. You, you could feel like as a Christian, you either have to say grace saves alone or grace goes to all, but you can't say both. And so yeah. what I'm doing is I'm saying, no, both. Grace yeah. can go to all and grace can save alone, and that can be a Christian position. Yeah. Would you lean more towards the idea that God extends grace to everyone in this life in almost a natural theology way, through the cross, through the cross still, but it's reaching out to everyone, and so when we die, we get in no matter what? Or do you have more of a vision that you have a long period of time after death to kind of come to the cross. What, what's, and this might just be my ignorance here asking this type of question, but what, like, yeah. what's your vision of this? Well, I, I think I finally came to the idea that, you know, that grace is kind of everything. The way I sort of explain it is uh, grace. Uh, like I used to think that grace was, you know, like 90% of salvation and that I thought it was like 95% of salvation and then 99%. You know, and finally, yeah, it just became, it became a hundred percent and it became the sort of the windshield, I guess, that I was looking through everything at now. Yeah. So everything is grace. It's just, it's just, it's just all grace. And what that means is, and it's all love. And so that, that passage in Acts 17, where Paul says, he's talking to these pagans and he says, well, we are, we're all live and moving. We're all God's children. We're all living and moving and having our being in God. You know, God is near to each one of us. So I kind of get this idea that we're all living and moving and having our being in God. And that and that gradually what happens is, is that grace continues to move us into that next direction in a loving way, kind of a loving and therapeutic way where we where we're not being, you know, browbeaten 
There's nothing that's happening to it. It's to me, it feels very therapeutic in that, you know, well, it, it's more of a, uh, of a, of a parent that would maybe instead of like spanking a child would sort of sit down with the child and say, well, tell me how that worked for you. Yeah. You know, what, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? What was your experience there? You know, what did you, what did you learn from that? I remember yeah. one time, um, I was at a, uh, I was doing a youth group and we had gone over to these people's home and they had a not nice house, a two story house and a pool. And this kid went into their house, went up to the second floor and jumped out of the second floor window into the pool. <laughs> okay. So I went and found the kid and I said, I'm not going to get mad at you, but let's just sit down here and just tell me, <laughs> tell me. Yeah. What was Whoa. going through your mind? <laughs> like, I'm really interested. Like, when did like when did you get the idea? Like, when did the idea come into your head? Like, I'm gonna go. Get, I'm gonna go in these people's homes. Go up, open with their window, and jump out. And like, what were you thinking? And like, what did you, yeah. you know, like, you know, it, what is yeah. there to learn from this experience? <laughs> well, and at the same time, like, there's an error in judgment here, but there's also a lot of good. There's courage. <laughs> there's creativity. <laughs> And these, like, we want to affirm part and other. Um, let, me, let me ask. So this is the part where my conservative donors at my institution get mad unless I ask this question. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I know where you're going to go respond. So I'll just, I could see a lot of people in more evangelical churches saying, okay, has he made grace so everything that it's just natural and it's not something that would have that needed the cross to occur. Uh, but it, there's sort of this almost collapse between grace and nature such that the cross didn't accomplish anything more. So it just announced it. And I can imagine the sort of theological moves that you're going to make to, to avoid that being the case. But I want to yeah. give you the chance to make those moves <laughs> as much for myself uh, as for you. Uh yeah, I just, you know, I just picked those passages from the New Testament, which talk about how um, overwhelming the victory of the cross was, you know, that the, that, and, and I like, I'm, I was really moved by the, the idea that the announcement of the gospel is the good news that the power of sin and death and evil has been triumphed over. And, and that in the ancient world, the, the, the euangelion, the evangel was often, you know, somebody would run and announce that a battle had been won because they, you know, uh, didn't have phones. And, you know, so somebody had to bring the good news that the battle had been won. So the the good news is that the power of, of sin, death, and evil has been defeated, that Christ has won uh, the victory, and that this victory is for all of humanity. And that what we can do right now is that by having faith and believing in that we can believe this good news that this victory has been won. And so we can receive that good news and live that in our lives right now. So we get yeah. to faith is not what makes it, it allows us to experience this victory right now so that we get to experience the kingdom of God right now. So we get to live in God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. So we get to do that. That's what being well in the my, my church, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, the idea was what we're trying to do is to be disciples who in whatever way we, we could. Dirty liberals. We, <laughs> yeah. We were manifest, trying to manifest the kingdom of God on earth as disciples or followers of Jesus in the best way that 
you know, that we could. And so for me then, the Sermon on the Mount was really important, loving enemies, doing good to those who may persecute you. I mean, living with this, like, if, living with this absolute ethic of total love, for me, uh, nonviolence, um, and that I began to look that that every person was not just somebody that I was to love in Christ's name, even if they're my enemy, but that every person was somebody that was infinitely important and that we were destined to to be eternally um, reconciled to each other. So that there was something about them right now that was mean that meant that we were out of tune with each other, that I loved them. But one of the w- ways I loved them was by imagining that we that whatever the problem was would ultimately be reconciled, that we're all going to be reconciled. As a matter of fact, yeah. Christ has already reconciled us all together so that what will happen in the coming ages is that we will all finally become one great body of Christ with Christ as the head. This kind of goes back to Irenaeus and the early church's idea about recapitulation in the Ephesians 1.10 Anacephali is so sty that the Christ will be the head of the body in the yeah. so so it all happens it, it, you know you have to have the you don't just have to have the uh, the cross you need to have the incarnation you need to have the resurrection yeah. you need to have all of it it's it's like my Christology is through the roof you know I I love those super high Christology passages in Colossians where all of creation comes into existence through Christ you know that. He's so he becomes so enormous uh, in all of this. So, yeah. I guess without getting into just starting to quote a bunch of Bible verses, that would be kind of the way I would think about it. Yeah, the grace is sort of everywhere, but it's not everywhere independent of the cross in some sort of natural way. Rather, no, because of the cross, it is everywhere. Yeah, incarnation um, because of the incarnation. Incarnation, you, you know, and, because, yeah, because of would, the whole deal. Yeah, Maxim. Yeah, Maximus Confessor is is an, makes an important, I think, can that uh, that it you know the incarnation. We you can tend to think, oh, it all happened on the cross, but when you get the incarnation, that and that to me fits in with your Trinitarian theology a lot. The incarnation becomes a, a massive part of all of this. Yeah. So can I can I ask a question? Am I allowed to turn the interview back on yes. you? Yeah. Um, so. Um, so my, my understanding is I, I don't I don't have uh, my, my sense of how I answer, say, the problem of suffering and mm-hmm. the atrocities that have occurred is that these were necessary possibilities in a universe where free will truly exists and where that free will really does matter because people are making choices that really do matter. And so in my sense, my theodicy comes back to freedom. Uh, in our conversations, it sounded a lot more like you have a sort of intellectualist vision of free will, where our nature is fundamentally oriented to the good, and we're ultimately all going to be back to God eventually, because that's our most basic nature, and that almost deterministically will out in the end. Um, my, I mean, maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, but... I wonder on on that account, why then did God allow this whole crazy, horrible process of holocausts and horrific choices to be made against each other? Why couldn't God have just 
snapped his fingers and given us the set nature that we needed to have and be present with him in eternity. Yeah, I think it's just a, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you could make a world in which parents um, had children and they just pop, they just came out as fully adult, you know, they didn't have to grow, you know, there was no, no growing up necessary, but there's something in that growing up process that I think is necessary, not just for us as individuals, but as a whole human, um, as a whole humanity. So I think what, it's not just that I'm learning things in this life. It's that we are learning things together in life. I'm, I'm learning from my experiences, but I'm also learning from your experiences. We're all, we're all finding out what the depths of evil can really do. Um, we're all finding out what the heights of love can really be. And so we're, we're all actually learning this, uh, together. And so that it, in my in my view, it must be necessary. Somehow the amount of evil and suffering that is allowed must be necessary for the final glorious outcome. And that the glorious outcome has to be so glorious and so amazing and so wonderful that even the person that suffered the most in this uh, creation will ultimately be very, very grateful to, have, to be a part, you know, to be a part of it. And I don't understand, I think that, I don't think that my Christian universalism is a theodicy per se, because I don't think it necessarily gives a satis, an obviously satisfactory answer to your question. And I think that your question is the hardest question for me to answer. Yeah. Um, But, but I think it makes it, I think it makes it, it think it, I think it puts it in the realm of a possible plausible answer to it even if it's not immediately satisfactory possible plausibility i love it yeah <laughs> um, no and that's that's a nuanced answer my, i guess my question is i think it is possible for people to learn a lesson while not having to learn it the hard way i i think often we have to learn it the hard way because mm-hmm. you know we're idiots and we make stupid decisions but there are people who learn a lesson the easy way because Mm -hmm. they did it right and they don't do it all the time but they make those decisions and i think in a sense uh what the incarnation theoretically proves is that it is possible for a human to learn all their lessons the right way not the hard way not by making the wrong choices i think the incarnation has to show that that is a human possibility if that is humanly possible and if god was going to give us set natures and the the free aspect wasn't needing to go beyond that set sort of intellectual, rational nature and orientation to the good. Why didn't God just create us to only learn our lessons the easy way without having to choose to sin and learn it the hard way and thereby avoid the entire history of suffering and evil? Well, this is this 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 radical radical otherness that you're talking about. Well, in, in my account, in my account, that radical otherness makes sense. I'm not sure where it is on yours. Yes, it makes. Well, the radical otherness means that that God allows people to descend to horrible levels of evil and inflict and, and, and inflict tremendous suffering, and uh, that God doesn't, you know, necessarily intervene and, and stop any of this from happening. So that radical otherness is is allowed to exist, and can exist uh, until it finally 
wears itself out. But at the at the final eschatological horizon after the end of the after end of the aeons, I think God can still know. Maybe God doesn't have to know every every wrong turn that we will make. But it's kind of like the uh, the chess master. You know, God can know might not know every bad move that I can make, but God could know that God would still be able to finally secure uh, the defeat of my deluded will in the end, and that I would not be lost um, forever in some kind of insanity. Yeah. So I guess my question is, you sent me a quote from David Bentley Hart in preparation Mm -hmm. for this uh, about an intellectualist view of human liberty. Yeah. Do you share that view? Yeah. Um, well, I guess my, my question is on that view. I mean, I don't want to just, just define that as compatibilism or determinism, but do you see any way in which it's not ultimately that? No, it's not. Because, okay. So this is like, so I am objecting to the libertarian free will idea. Yes. Because the libertarian sure. free will says, you know, that in order to be a free decision, we must always have the option to do the other. But if you're at the eschatological horizon and you know, you know, you're, you're all of your, it, the most wonderful imaginable, you see it clearly and perfectly as the good. And then you see the other option as uh, clearly horrible and repulsive that you, it's not because you're, it's not because you're um, uh, a slave that you're choosing the good. It's because you are now free. You've been, you are set free. The truth has set you free, and so now you see clearly. And there is no, absolutely no incentive for you to choose the the evil because you see it for the hundred percent evil that it is. So it has no, it doesn't have any attraction to you anymore yeah. because you are free. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, we could argue about whether that's freedom or not. And I think there's some, there's something to be said for that type of thing, but that's, I don't, I think what I can say is that's the sort of freedom that doesn't really help with a theodicy because if it was possible for God to have determined all of us to have learned our lessons the right way and not make the wrong decision, which I think we have to admit the incarnation shows is possible for humans, then it should have been possible for us to have learned all of these lessons and for God to have determined from the beginning that none of us would make the decision to learn the lessons the hard way, but always make the right choices such that all of the atrocities and I think the fall uh, in its many manifestations could have been entirely avoided and us learn our lessons and get to this glorious end without suffering. Whereas uh, I think a a different version of free will, uh, which has problems of its own, but if it's assumed could allow for an actual explanation of why the world is the way it is. And I don't think this is a small issue for the universalist position because I mean, in many ways, the problem of suffering is the problem. It's if I've found it to be the hardest problem to solve, for theology in general, and one of the the best reasons not to be religious. So it's <laughs> it's, it's and for me the o- one of the only things I've ever retreated to is free will, and so it is a major issue for me that I'm struggling with this intellectualist view of freedom that universalists seem to be taking. I don't know if 
you have to take it to be a universalist. I imagine there are ways in which to conceive of this without that. But I think that's definitely a harder vision to understand because without the inherent rational orientation in your nature toward the good, there really isn't any sense that you ultimately have to universally come back to God in the end. There is more genuine underness where you might never come right. back. To oh, and, okay, then, but then you still, to me, then you still, okay, let's say that you don't have any general, genuine orientation towards the good. So then God makes a creation in which people uh, don't have a, don't have sort of some kind of true inherent orientation, and then they just go haywire. And, well, okay, well, I hope you can, uh, you know, you don't have any, there isn't anything underlying you that's, that's, pointing you back to me. It's just, you just have to make that decision on your own. You don't have anything inherent there. And then if people don't do that, then to me, we, okay, you've got the problem. Why is there suffering? And if, if all are not finally saved for me, I've got a problem with the goodness of God. I, I, at that point, God, if God makes a creation in which God doesn't know what's going to happen. The, the, the creations that he makes have no inherent rationality or orientation toward the good. They go haywire. They kill each other. They uh, go insane, and God can't do anything about it. it, it even, if, even if I'm one of the lucky ones that happens to survive all of that in some kind of strange Hunger Games kind of situation, and, and Jesus is presented to me as the one who made it all happen— I'm still looking at that whole situation and saying, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, you appear to me to be more like a demiurge than yeah. than anything else. And I'm, and, you know, unless something miraculous happens that I don't know, can't anticipate, if that's the situation, I can't imagine wanting to worship in that situation. I can imagine yeah. just like wanting to get far away. <laughs> <laughs> as far away as yeah. I could from, you know, as I could from that. Yeah. Well, and I think we might be hitting on the point where I know my book doesn't address this specific, the specific question of universalism, but I think we might be hitting the point where it does provide a, an account of free will that I think can perhaps navigate these conversations a bit better than some of the alternate models. Cause I agree that with the basic critique of libertarian free will. Um, and maybe, maybe this is where I should just give an explanation of my account. Um, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you do that? You said, so you told me, you told me that if I would give you three minutes, you could, yeah, explain. I was lying. Was like, <laughs> uh, but, um, so yeah, go basically ahead and do the that. argument of my book is that when you look, when you look at the Trinity and when you look at free will, they don't make sense. And when I was in high school, I started studying the Trinity and free will, and I could not make sense of them. And so I just said, well, I'm not going to believe in the Trinity. I'm not going to be a Christian and I'm not going to believe in free will. Um, but then when I started studying the origins of the universe in college, I started to realize that the origins of the universe also doesn't make sense. What's more, the philosophical problems of the origins of the universe are actually the same philosophical problems that arise when we talk about free will and the Trinity. They're, they're not three separate unrelated problems. They actually seem to be the same philosophical problem just referred to in the language of three different disciplines. And so I realized 
it's the same issue each time. Uh, so the Trinity and free will might not make sense, but nor do the origins of the universe. And if the Trinity and free will make as much sense as our own existence, then perhaps it's as rational to believe in them as it is to believe in our own existence. And so that's my basic way of embracing free will, even though I don't think it makes sense. Now, that argument would require a lot more elaboration because I'd have to explain exactly what the enigma is that underlies all three and how it's the same in each one. But let's put that a pin in that for a second because that's the basic work. Now I'm going to explain my thoughts on free will. The problem with determinism or compatibilism, or I think the intellectualist account of free will, is that you're limited to your nature. And so whatever you do, you could never have done differently because that's who you are. You were forced into that by the nature of what you are and could never have gone beyond that nature to act differently. However, the problem with the alternative libertarian free will is that it requires you to act outside of and beyond your nature. In which case, if you're acting beyond your nature, how is it really you who is acting? It's, it's uncaused by you. It's uncaused by your nature. And so it's more like something just popping into existence uncaused out of nothing. If our choices are not grounded in us as the choosers and our nature, then how can they really be said to be our choices? They're more like the random jerkings of an arm mm-hmm. uh, just has a tick or something or uh, a quantum thing popping into existence out of nowhere. Those aren't really choices. They're randomness. And so on the one hand, you need to be able to go beyond your nature or else you're limited by your nature. On the other hand, you need to be able to also make choices from within your nature in order for it to be you who's making the choices. Free will seems to require both. It requires you to be acting both within and beyond your nature at the same time and in the same way, which I would agree with David Bentley Hart is a dizzying contradiction because something would have to be both within its nature and beyond its nature at the same time. However, I think that's precisely what the Trinitarian mystery at the origins of the universe is. And read the book if you want to understand more of that. But a quick summary is, I think God is both one and three, goes is both within its oneness, but beyond that oneness in its freeness is both father and more than father. And so I think it goes, there's always this tension between what something is and going beyond what it is to something else. And I think that is the tension of the Trinity. And in the origins of the universe, I locate it in the fact that uh, an eternal timeless being was able to act outside of its timeless nature to begin to create a temporal effect such as creation. Um, which I think is a contradiction as well, for how can a timeless being begin to create? And so I basically argue that free will doesn't make sense, but it makes as much sense as our own existence. Therefore, it's as rational to believe in as the fact that we are here at all. Now, that is the quickest abbreviated version (laughs) at a very uh, intellectual level. The book is written as a Socratic dialogue, it's more conversational. And I unpack all of those arguments and explain them much better and more clearly in a conversational matter that involves lots of alcohol. Um, So if, if you're interested in what I just said, read the book. But with that in mind, I think it is as rational as our own existence to believe that we have a nature 
that is oriented towards God and toward the good. I think that's what we hear in the first chapters of Genesis. And yet to somehow go beyond that nature to freely choose to sin and fall, as is described in Genesis chapter 3. And I think that account makes the best sense of the scriptural narrative. And I think it's also the most philosophically coherent account of free will, even as it's incoherent. Because even though I don't understand it, even though it doesn't make sense, I've shown how it makes as much sense as the existence of the universe. And so even though I can't understand it, it's as rational to believe in as the fact that we are sitting here existing and having this conversation to begin with. Because if things like this weren't possible, we wouldn't exist to talk about it. And so I would say it is possible for God to create us with a rational nature oriented towards the good and yet to freely choose to act outside of and beyond that nature. And you would say, but how does that make sense? And I would say it doesn't, but it's still rational to believe in as rational as your own existence. And I think ultimately as rational as the Trinity. And I, from there develop a Trinitarian view of free will uh, and basically Uh, of this sort of question. And so it makes it possible for me in my system to say things like, I do think we have a rational orientation towards the good. And yet, despite that, can be go beyond our nature, other our nature, other the goodness that's in the Imago Dei, and choose to go beyond that. And so on the one hand, I think I avoid the intellectualist determinism that I see in the universalism position. But I think I also avoid the random chaotic world without any Imago Dei that has no orientation to God that you just described. And you would say, but how does that position make sense? And then I would peel back to my broader argument where, well, it doesn't make sense, but it's as rational to believe in as your own existence. And that's my, my kind of two-step where I'm constantly yeah. going for the reason, but also trying to rationally justify it by saying it doesn't make sense, but it makes as much sense as anything. And if you think we exist, then you you got to take for granted that these sort of enigmas occur and exist and find a way to deal with them in how we're talking about these questions, as opposed to trying to get rid of the enigmas by pretending everything is as rational as our minds are. I want to be rational, but I don't want to be more rational than reality. And if reality seems to be pooping out these enigmas, I want to incorporate those enigmas into my thoughts and theologies and philosophies and work with them. So... That was definitely not three minutes. <laughs> well, I recently interviewed Eric Rytan, and he's a philosopher, uh, Oklahoma State University. I believe that's where he is. Um, and he wrote a philosophical um, f- philosophical defense of universalism. And in that book, he was saying that but the thing is, is that let's say God has then unlimited chances to show you um, or to, to visit with you, and you do have this rational nature. So you are, whether you want to or not, you're accumulating uh, what I like to call change capital. You know, you're, the, more, the more you go against the grain of things, the more splinters you pick up. And so you're finally becoming more and more illumined. God's not, God can be completely therapeutic in this whole process. And if God has, you know, infinity in order to be with you until you finally uh, see the light, then 
then God finally gets what God desires, and that ultimately, the I think the idea that that ultimately what God I kind of imagine like like parents, you know, they they when they when they have a family, they imagine, you know, them them gathered all around the table together and all loving each other and having it, everything be wonderful. Um, and well, that doesn't happen, you know, initially because the kids can't talk and everything <laughs> and they're going through childhood and then they're, and they got those issues going on and then they're going through puberty and they're going through their teenage years. But they, they imagine that when they're mature, that it's not that they don't, it can't enjoy them at the different parts of their growing up, but they imagine that one day there's going to be this mature moment where they're going to be able to understand each other. They're going to exist in the same world together in some kind of in some kind of harmony and that the child is going to fully understand the love that has always been there for them. And that that's what's got that's what God is imagining as that we're God's giant family and that ultimately we will all be able to share in and recognize and understand that love that God has had for us and the love that we have for each other. And if that is what God is up to, and if that is what God is doing, uh, and that's what this creation is all about, then I, for one, would be very, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that. I am not going to say, I don't imagine myself saying, I can't believe you did this to me. <laughs> but I would say I can't I can't imagine myself saying what an astounding and wonderful gift that has been given to all of us. Isn't this isn't this wonderful and amazing? So there's nothing to me that sounds that sounds wrong or bad. Uh, you use the use the word that I'm being forced into something. I was being manipulated into something. It sounds to me like I've been given the greatest gift of all by the greatest being of all. And that gift has been given to everybody. And so I, I don't, nobody, nobody is here needing, nobody is holding grudges against each other. Nobody's mad at each other anymore. We've all forgiven each other. We all understand everything. And now we're just in this state of pure enjoyment and creativity. And um, Gregory of Nyssa had this idea of, of epictasis, which was a kind of a, a, which means kind of a stretching or an unfolding. And there was a way that, that that even that experience would not become tedious, that it would continue to unfold and just keep continually getting better and better, that the infinite goodness of God left us then still, even at the point where we reach full illumination together, but still just the beginning of the journey, that it can continue to just keep getting better and better. And I guess when I start thinking about all of that, then... I start feeling like a bunch of internal resonance to it. The internal resonance, then I don't know, maybe it affects my, the way I'm starting to think about it, but it all just, it, it forms a really powerful cohesion for me. I get that. And I think, I think there is power in that. And I wonder if, I guess what I was hitting at is, perhaps this is a nice way to put a bow on it, is I think a universalist account might have a better theodicy in the end but i don't think it my personal opinion is i don't think it has a great theodicy when it comes to getting to the end the means to the end of explaining why we had to go through this to get to that end and perhaps the other positions the more classic the more you know traditional 
Christian exclusivist types of positions have a better theodicy of freedom during life itself, but then struggle more to have a theodicy of the end because not everyone is saved. And perhaps that's ultimately the, the tension is that one of the views provides one of those things and the other provides the other, but neither of them does both that well. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you're thinking, well, actually, I think it does. But <laughs> and we'll go back. But I, I think maybe that's, that's something I've gotten out of this is um, I, I feel like the freedom position that I've articulated is one that doesn't fully answer the problem of evil, but it's, it's a much better answer um, than, to me at least, than what I've been hearing here. And yet I also feel like the answer you're presenting, the beatific vision at the end, is in a lot of ways, at least aesthetically, superior to the eschatology of what I'm hearing from other more Christian, more conservative evangelicals on this. So yeah. that's an interesting tension. Um, and I wonder, your, your thing about how can we enjoy eternity if even one person isn't there? I mean, that's very much the same question that I'm asking you, but of this life. How can we... Uh, enjoy eternity of even one child had to be tortured in this life to get there. Um, and so I, I think both of them have this same gaping question. It's just where you locate it, in my opinion. And I'm sure we could go back and forth about it. Right. That's but. what, that's what, that's why I'm saying. I think that your theodicy question for me is the hardest one. And I think that's your yeah. best, I think that's your best critique. And so what I, I'm not trying to claim that I have an obviously satisfying theodicy. Oh um, yeah. Well, I yeah, wasn't I'm trying not... to critique you. I'm more just trying to articulate. <laughs> I'm just talking out loud. I don't think about this very often. So you've got you've thought about it and you're very articulate about it. I'm just sort of talking in circles till I figure out what I think about it. So yeah. Well, the the the, the if if it is, let's say that it's the case that that we we already know that these terrible things are happening. Okay. So what's the possible resolution? One possible resolution is that the terrible things happen and at the end, um, some of them are, are never resolved um, um, at all. Um, it could be that this um, person that you were talking about, the little girl that's tortured, uh, well, she goes insane, and that's the end of her story. That's, that's, a, that's not a satisfying end to that story for me. So... Um, well, okay, then you could say, okay, well, we'll make it to where then everybody that goes through some torturous existence has a happy ending. Uh, well, but the people that, that didn't respond to the and help them, maybe they, 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 they're the ones that don't get to, <laughs> they don't get the yeah. happy ending. That, well, somehow it just, um, it just makes sense to me that that I've, I've got the suffering to deal with one way or another and that this provides me at least a possible resolution and that yeah. there could be some resolution to this that's so beyond our ability to comprehend right now that, tr that, uh, that Paul's saying that the sufferings of this time, you know, aren't worthy of comparing. And it's hard, yeah. it's hard to, it's without minimalizing the suffering that people are going through now, uh, it's hard for us to imagine what God possibly could be up to yeah. eternally. 
and what well, the yeah. what the journey is that God is ultimately taking all of creation on. Well, and like it could be eternal conscious torment, but the tormentors are just tickling you. Like it's not a big deal. Or uh, <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. Once once you go beyond reason and say it could be anything, it could be anything. Um, yeah. What I, th- I think is interesting is we're hitting this tension of what matters more, the journey or the destination. Um, and you're, you're willing to say whatever journey is, is permissible if we get to this destination. Um, and I can, I can hear people saying the back and forth. And, and in some ways we're hitting back to that question of what matters more, the embodied here and now, or the, you know, spiritual, eternal. And I, I think the Christian answer will ultimately transcend both of those because Christ is the end in the midst of the journey, eternity in time, uh, the kingdom of God already made manifest here and now. It's he's going to transcend both of those categories in some way, I think. Yeah, I did. a, I, a you know, there's different texts that you might imagine that I would really gravitate to the ones where Jesus says, you know, if I'm lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all people to myself. And so I imagine, you know, I'm imagining that that's happening, you know, until that God, that that's going to finally, that is going to happen. And uh, of course, I like the passage from Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, where God does not cast off anyone forever. Yes, God causes grief, um, but it's, you know, he doesn't, it, it, it's not something he wants to do. Uh, so this idea that, you know, you kind of see this, you know, running through the Old Testament story too, where there's, it seems that the, that finally the, the end of the line has come for the Jewish people. And, you know, they've, they've, now they're in an unrecoverable situation somehow, but then there's mercy and then there's restoration. So those, I think all those themes of restoration ultimately are the ones that just kept, they kept surfacing for me. And until finally, the idea of the restoration of all things, uh, apocatastasis, that, you know, that just really resonated to me as the best final hopeful resolution. And and the idea that somebody would be tickled eternally in hell. Okay, that that sounds kind of funny, but but the very much a joke, not a serious point. Right. Right. But the idea is that we're not just wanting to go to heaven. What we're wanting to do is to experience with union with God, which is one of the things I like about the Eastern Orthodox tradition is that they, they really define salvation as union with God and that the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being would be to finally miss out on the experience of union with God, that that's what this whole thing is about. That's, that's the end goal that we're all headed. That's the experience that we're all, that's the experience that's going to put everything into perspective outside of that experience. We still haven't, been saved. It's only when we, you know, when we get to that all together. Yeah. And I think that's a good point that the horror and the, the truly traumatic thing is not the idea that someone would be punished eternally. It's that they're missing out on God. Yes. Uh, Like, and, and to just avoid punishment is, is in a sense to solve an immediate physical need, but it, it doesn't answer that deeper question of meaning and beauty and goodness and being separate from those things for mm-hmm. eternity, which 
are problematic, even if it isn't eternal conscious torment, but just a kernel separation from God. Well, this has been so. a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I, uh, I uh, gave up on uh, alcoholic drinks about 10 years ago, but I do, they, they have a bunch of wonderful um, uh, non-alcoholic beers now, wonderful IPAs. I really enjoy them. So I'm just imagining that if we're in a pub and we're doing theology and I'm drinking my non-alcoholic beers, I'm going to be able to just keep on going. <laughs> further, further up and further in. I, I, heard, I, I talked to a universalist one time that uh, found psychedelics helps them to glimpse the universalist vision of everybody coming together. Uh, so perhaps alcohol isn't your thing. Uh, David, <laughs> yeah. I'm not. Well, I'm not saying psychedelics I, I, are are the way either. But uh, <laughs> well, I I, yeah. I heard a, a, this a comedian who was an atheist, and he said that was, you know you never know what you're getting when you're on YouTube and seeing videos. But he was a comedian, hardcore atheist, and he was friends with Chris Rock, and he was telling this story that he went down to Mexico and they were at a resort, and a bunch of them took the psychedelics, and mm. and for him. He said, now, now I believe in God that there, you know, he experienced like the unity of all, you know, the unity of all things. It doesn't necessarily, I think what happens is when people do that, they have the experience of the unity of all things. In a way, it's kind of like a near death experience. But what happens is it doesn't necessarily come with a the theology of Christian universalism. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's kind of a different, there's a, yeah. there is a kind of a fundamental unity that, that happens in Christian universalism, but the, I don't know that 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 um, you know taking the psychedelics would get you <laughs> for sure. And I didn't, I didn't mean to stereotype there. I was just joking that you you did, didn't want alcohol, so I was saying, well, what else could you have for our, our pub conversation? And I wasn't saying you should take psychedelics. I, uh, as I as I told you, uh, for me, theology is one part theology, two parts ridiculousness, and that's that's what this. That's just me in the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have to have you on the spiritually incorrect. Podcast oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I, for, I uh, listen for that. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, well, I listened. I've been looking at that your podcast and the kind of folks that you have on there, and so it seems like you all have fun talking from you know all kinds of different talk to all kinds of different people. So I would, I'd love to get a chance to do that with with you guys sometime. Well, we've been wanting to do a universalist episode at some point. Uh, we were thinking, you know, either Robin Perry or DBH, or I guess we could have you on as well. So that would be that'd be good. And and in this, I mean, we have these types of conversation all the time. You know, we we talk about reincarnation. We we do actually have an episode where we interview an expert on psychedelics and whether they can actually help you see God or whether those are hallucinations or real or. So yeah, we're, we're doing all sorts of out there episodes and trying to help, I think, the Christian community have a broader conversation yeah. uh, than they're used to having. And um, it's and so. it's really fun. I mean, your podcasts are fun to listen to. They're the the, well, the dialogue that. that you and your brother-in-law have is really fun. And you're talking about interesting things. And um, I think that's what I'm trying to do on my podcast is a little bit too, is trying to talk to some people that are not necessarily in my lane but close enough that we can have good, interesting uh, conversations about it. And, and so I think we did that today. I think that's a, a, that's a, it was good for me. And I hope that that models uh, for other folks that we can have these types of conversations in a good natured, fun kind of way. 
for sure. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.